every Wednesday uh, afternoon, and maybe you've been there, I don't know, but every Wednesday in the afternoon in the summer, people who live in Nisswa or those who are up in their cabins, you know, visiting that area of, of Nisswa, Minnesota, they gather together in a designated parking lot uh, for the infamous, and maybe you've been there, maybe you've seen this, the Nisswa Turtle Races. You've been there for that? Ever seen those? The Nisswa Turtle Races. It, it, evidently, it, it, it's quite a big thing there. It's big excitement, and in fact, it's big business. Um, vendors, they rent turtles. Uh, uh, others sell turtle products. Um, Fans come from all over the area and they gather early and they uh, uh, find their front row seats, you know, place down their lawn chairs and their blankets to make sure they don't miss a thing. In fact, one evening, a couple summers ago, evidently they say there were some 435 turtles that were raced in 15 different heats over the six-foot course. I think it starts fairly early in the afternoon. My guess is with 435 turtles having to race, it would have to start pretty early in the afternoon to get through all of that. Biff, the announcer, I love that name. It, it fits, doesn't it? The announcer's name is Biff. He calls the turtles to their marks, gives them the go sign, and the crowd begins to go wild. Uh, people stand up and they jump up and they wave their arms and they clap their hands um, Turtle trainers, you know, they are yelling at the top of their lungs, imploring their turtles to be unturtle like. <laughs> the excitement grows, and finally, it, the excitement reaches its peak boiling point as the preliminary win winners all gather together for the championship race. <laughs> In the midst of the unrestrained shouts and uh, Cheers, the first turtle crosses the finish line in that championship race. And the winning trainer, okay, catch this, the winning trainer receives $5, um, along, along with a turtle necklace, evidently. <laughs> and here's the, here's the funny part of all of this, I think. This, this thing takes place, think about this, with uncharacteristic frenzy in a place that's normally full of reserved Scandinavians from <laughs> northern Minnesota. And yet, ironically, people get upset when someone worships too expressively on, in church on Sunday mornings. <laughs> uh, turtle races on Saturdays, cheering, fine, um, Church, Sunday mornings, worship service, <laughs> that's out of bounds. Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor, once said, the core problem is not that we are too passionate about bad things, but that we are not passionate enough about good things. Let me repeat that. Core problem is not that we are too passionate about bad things, but that we are not passionate enough about good things. So here's my simple question this morning, that is this, how passionate are you in your pursuit and enjoyment of God? I want to suggest, see, there are two kinds of worship. A worship that's alive and another that is lifeless. 
a worship that is passionate and, and, and joyful and praising God for who he is and another kind that's passive, oftentimes <laughs> miserable, a sense of, of coldness. And I think we find both of those types of worship demonstrated in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 6 this morning. A couple weeks ago, we started off looking at this passage in our first sermon on this series, um, a series called Catching Fire, Igniting a Heart of Worship. And as we looked and started looking at worship, we looked at the first section, first half of this uh, chapter and we saw some interesting things. We saw David. He had become this, the new king of Israel. So in order to legitimize his role as the new king um, and to show everyone that God was blessing him in his role as this new king, he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to his new capital city of Jerusalem. But his first try in doing so, it ended up in complete disaster. One of his men made the fatal mistake of touching the ark, and immediately God struck him down dead. And David got angry at God, and then his anger, it turned to fear. And so David ended up leaving that ark of the covenant there in the home of Obed-Edom, whom it says God then blesses, strangely enough. So now, three months later, David has decided he's ready to try it again. In fact, look with me. 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David, um, David's understanding, it seems like to me, um, of who God is has matured by this point. Three months later, he has grown up in his understanding of, of God and how to worship him. This time he approaches God not only with rejoicing, but also with reverence. Worship that praises God's goodness and at the same time is humble before God's holiness. This time the ark is carried with poles on the shoulders of the, the priests, just like the law had instructed them to do. <laughs> they made the mistake trying to carry it on that cart earlier. And David also offers sacrifices. You notice this? After the first six steps are taken, David stops the procession and he offers a sacrifice making sure that all of those involved understood that it is the Lord God who is in control of all that goes on. And it's only Yahweh who is being worshipped here. In the Old Testament, see, animal sacrifices were, it was a way of, of honoring God out of one's wealth. Um, I mean, herds of Animals were the currency of the day, representing property and, and status. So David was giving to God not just his, his songs, um, but also his life. 
Tim Keller said, worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. That's worship. That's exactly what David is doing here. He is giving God what he is worth, not only out of his wealth, but also, catch this, from his heart. Look with me at the next two verses, starting in verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David is wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. <laughs> um, David dances before the Lord. Now, I know that many times as an evangelical, you know, in our evangelical world, we, we, we want to focus on that, the, the idea of dancing before the Lord. But see, I, I think we need to focus on the last couple of words right after that. Look what he says here. And David danced with the Lord, what? With all his might. With all of his energy. All of his strength. David dances before the Lord. This was a man who was known, right? For seeking after the heart of God. And his worship here reflects that heart. It's passionate. It's, it's joyful. It's, it's energetic. And, and that, I want to suggest to you, is the first kind of worship. It's a worship of God that is passionate, full of passion and energy. In fact, I, I want to ask you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Hold your place back in 2 Samuel, but turn with me to 1 Chronicles 16, because here in 1 Chronicles 16, we're told the same story from a slightly different perspective, okay? Um, and starting in verse 8... Uh, what is here is we're given a psalm, uh, a song of, of, of thanks, a song of worship, of praise that David writes for this celebration that we're talking about. And I want you to notice this psalm is full of, you know, what I would call get involved type of language. In fact, look with me, verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all of his wondrous works. Glory is his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Instructions, you see, get involved instructions. Like give thanks, call upon his name, uh, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous deeds. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. <laughs> That's active language. Uh, look down with me at verse 28. Again, part of the psalm here. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory. Do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all of the earth. Again, this is get involved kind of, of language. Ascribe the Lord glory and strength. Bring an offering before him. Tremble before him. See, David is singing and he's praising God from the heart. This psalm is here in First Chronicles is uh, 16 is a, is a call to action. Not a passive worship. Active worship. It's a call to energetic involvement in this thing called worship. <laughs> David's worship also is an example. It, it, it's contagious. So you go back to that Second Samuel, our story in Second Samuel, and you, you find out that as he danced, so did the people. 
As he shouted, so did the, the people. As he sang, so did the, the people. It was a day of a huge, passionate, active celebration of worship. But while David's worship was passionate and active, there's a second kind of worship that we find here in this story. Michael, uh, King uh, David's wife, personifies this type of, of worship. That's what I would call passive worship. Look with me, in fact, at verse 16. Look what it says here. As the ark of the Lord came into the city, David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping, dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, that little detail that the author here gives us, that she looked out of the window? She's chosen to stay back, to stay at a, at, at a distance from this, this worship. She's chosen not to join in with the crowd and the, and the singing and the, and the dancing. She hasn't gone down in the middle of those thousands and, and lifted her voice. She is, my guess is, even refusing to uh, uh, move her foot to any rhythm of the music. <laughs> no, 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 no. Michael, she stayed home. And she watched from a window. Now, I, I, I don't know. Maybe she had a good reason to. Um, maybe it was because she had to oversee a staff or, or she had a long to-do list or maybe because uh, she had a headache <laughs> or, or, or because her favorite football team was playing on television that day. I, you know, we don't know why she didn't necessarily go out, but we do know that she had a good view from her upstairs window there in the, in the palace and that at her window she could stay dignified, royal, Instead of uh, being a participant, she could uh, remain a distant spectator. Have you ever gone to a sporting event, you know, and sat in the stands? Over the years, you know, I've been, had an opportunity to go to various sporting events, um, you know, go for games, uh, a couple Viking games, uh, wild games. In fact, I remember very distinctly back in 2009, I was able to go to the PGA Championship out at the Hazeltine uh, Golf Course uh, Country Club. And I was there. I remember. I was there in the crowd when, uh, and I watched Tom Lehman um, chip in, uh, uh, in from off the, the, the green, off of hole seven. I was also there when Tiger Woods hit a birdie on that same hole. Um, I mean, I, you know... Being not a very good golfer, <laughs> I was amazed at what the golfers, these best golfers in the world, could do with a, a simple golf club and uh, how they could control that little white ball, you know, put it where they wanted it. But see, every once in a while, a, a shot would go off target. Um, and invariably, I would hear someone in the crowd around me uh, comment, ah, he shouldn't have hit it there. Or, ah, uh, oh, that was a terrible shot. <laughs> I thought, yeah, like you could do any better? Come on. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, when you're standing on the sidelines to be critical? When you remain a distant spectator, you can be so critical. Do you know why? 
Because I think when you're an observer only, you can easily misinterpret what a person is trying to do. I think that's what happened here. Michael looks out the window, and as this distant spectator, she sees David, the king, shouting and, and singing and dancing and carrying on and a simple linen ephod, and she despises him. Why? Because instead of seeing a man who was worshiping God with all he had, she saw a king who was an embarrassment. <laughs> Do you notice the subtle description here of Michael in verse 16? You see this? It says, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Michael, the daughter of Saul. Didn't, um, she's not called the, the wife of David. <laughs> no, it's just she's identified as the daughter of Saul all the way through this story. Now understand, she had grown up as a king's daughter. Michael knew all about position and esteem and, and all the things that make royalty seem royal. Saul, her father, had been celebrated as the, the first king of Israel, and, and he had been appointed and anointed by none other than the highly respected uh, prophet of God, you know, Samuel. <laughs> she had watched her father, Saul, guard his kingship with all that he had. He'd become addicted to the praise of the people. Woe to anyone who was celebrated more than he was. Royal spears were waiting to be hurled at such people. Saul knew all about defending himself and about guarding his dynasty and celebrating his own successes and I can't help but believe that Michael, Saul's daughter, had learned some of this from her father. And like her father, she was consumed by the need to protect her image. Image was everything to her. <laughs> she valued what others think more than she valued what God thought. And then, of course, there's the fact that David was dancing around, right, in that simple linen ephod. I mean... You got to ask, why was a king not wearing uh, kingly robes, right? Well, because all the priests and art carriers and musicians were wearing a plain linen ephod. I mean, that was the dress of the worship leaders. And the effect was a, a, a simple uniformity. David's desire it was to uh, blend in. It wasn't to stand out. David wanted to join in. <laughs> and become a full participant in the worship. So he set aside his royal garments with all their jewels and, and, and their fine threads. He didn't want the focus to be on him. He wanted the focus rather to be on God. Visualize a, a chess board for a moment. Now, on a chess board, the bishop in chess, it's an important piece, right, on the board. But what pieces are more valuable on the chessboard, right? That's the king and queen, right? Royalty. Now, that doesn't mean the bishop has no value. It's just that royalty is seen as, as, as more important, more significant. In removing his royal garments, David was declaring that in the presence of God, he wasn't important. He wasn't a king before the Lord, his God. No, no, he was God's servant. And Michael, she missed that whole point. 
She only saw David disgracing himself, stepping down from his regal position, embracing a lesser position in the sight of Israel, and that offended her. And so when from her second story perch, this daughter of Saul sees her husband, the, the king, acting very unbecoming of a king, she despises him for it. She scorns him. And that scorn turns into an attack. In fact, look at Michael's response. I want to see that after, he, after David returns home from, from worshiping, after David has returned home from praising God for his goodness and, and sacrificing before God for his holiness, after David has blessed, been blessed, and, and so much so that he blesses all of those who he had worshiped with, and he wants to bring that blessing back to his home, back to his wife. Look with me at verse 20. And David returns to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, there it is again, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovered himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. <laughs> David, yeah. I have to imagine after being on this, this, this high, this spiritual high, he reaches the palace and he's met at the door by the voice of sarcasm. Michael's scorn tumbles out of her caustic lips. David, you look like a strip dancer performing in front of peasants. The attack, you hear the tone? It was personal. She exaggerates the issue. And those words, I have no doubt, they pierce David deeply. That's what happens when the voice of scorn meets the heart of worship, doesn't it? It can't help but hurt. Why does Michael lash out like this? <laughs> I think because at the core, as a distant spectator, she missed the focus of worship, what worship was all about. To her image and reputation, the look, the name, the status, those were the most important things. What Michael was saying to David was, we are not commoners, David who mingle with the masses? No, we're not citizens of the street. We belong in palaces, not in parades of priests. We have an image to protect. And you, my husband, the king, you have shown that you understand none of this. <laughs> Look at David's response, verse 21. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held up in honor. <laughs> David is saying, Michael, you've missed it. Michael, what's happened out there in the street was not about me. It was not about my image or, or my reputation. It was, I wasn't concerned about guarding the, my kingdom. It was about God. <laughs> Michael, listen, I was dancing before the Lord. It wasn't about pleasing people. I was doing this before God who chose my heart over your father's heart the dynasty of your father was rejected for the dynasty of, 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 of one who understood this truth. 
God is to receive the glory. We're to be passionate for him. So listen, Michael, I don't really care how I look before the people. What I care about is expressing the central passion of my heart. And the ironic thing is, is that because of that, I will be held up in honor by those peasants who you seem to despise. You see, the passion of David's heart, the passion of of David's dance, the passion of, of David's worship, of his singing, was for the glory of God. For Michael, David's indecent exposure was an unacceptable setting aside of his royal dignity. For David, it was an unintended side effect of his wholehearted worship of Yahweh. For Michael, royal dignity was perhaps all she had left, but for David, it was completely irrelevant in light of the God of who God is, in light of his glory. And the story, if you notice, it ends in a very tragic note. Look with me at verse 23. And Michael, this daughter of Saul, had no child to the day to her death. Another translation puts it this way. And Michael, daughter of Saul, was barren the rest of her life. The author seems, I think, to be giving us a little bit of a double meaning. Not only was Michael barren physically, but she was also barren spiritually. She had been a distant spectator of the eternal for too long. And it led her to the bareness of her soul. See, it's a dangerous thing, friends, to be just a religious spectator. To watch from the window, it leads to misunderstanding and then misunderstanding to bitterness. To passively watch from the window or on a live stream or on a back pew of a sanctuary or the front pew or any pew for that matter. To passively watch is to be inoculate inoculated from the truth. To simply be an observer, critique and assess, not really join in, can fool us into thinking, ah, we're involved, you know, we have the right thing. See, the spirit of Michael says it's all about me. My image, my time, my status, my comfort, my schedule, my tastes. When the spirit settles into the Christian's heart, or when it settles into the heart of a whole church family, we begin, I think, to do weird things. We begin to form our Christianity to serve us. We read the Bible from a me-centered focus. We begin to base our faith on what God has or has not done for me. Our prayers begin to center around our own comforts. We evaluate a church service on the basis of how much we enjoyed it, as if we are consumers of worship. See, God seeks hearts that are passionate about giving him the glory. (laughs) Now listen, I'm not saying that every time that Pastor Paul and the worship team get up here and lead us in worship, that we need to create this emotional uh, state of frenzy. I mean, we have to be careful about that. 
Nor can we in reality sustain that emotional uh, exuberance about God every minute of every day. But somewhere, friends, somewhere in our hearts and somewhere in our days and somewhere in our priorities and somewhere in our checkbooks, there must be a passion for him and his glory. Can you imagine, I mean, just think about it. Can you imagine the mystery and delight of just hearing, not just hearing, but seeing the story of Jesus for the very first time? Almost as if you were eyewitness. <laughs> That's what happened to a tribe in the jungles of East Asia where missionaries showed um, them the Jesus film. Not only had these people never heard of Jesus, they had never seen a motion picture before. <laughs> and then, on one unforgettable evening, they saw it all. The gospel in their own language, visible and real on a screen. Imagine again how it felt to see this good man, Jesus, who healed the sick and was adored by children, held without trial, and being beaten by jeering soldiers. As they watched, the people that were watching became unglued. They stood up and began to shout at the cruel men on the screen, demanding that they stop that outrage. When nothing happened, they attacked the missionary who was running the projector. Perhaps he was responsible for this injustice. He, he was forced to stop the film and uh, explain that the story wasn't over yet, that there was still more, and he was finally able to settle them back down, and they got sat back down on the ground and, and holding their emotions, you know, in, in tenuous check, they continued. Then came the crucifixion. Again, the people, they, they couldn't hold back. They began to weep and wail with such loud grief that, that once again the film had to be stopped and the missionary had to try to calm them down, explaining to them the story that it still wasn't over. There, there's still more. <laughs> so finally they, they, they composed themselves and they sat back down to see what would happen next. Then came the resurrection. Pandemonium broke out again, but this time it broke out for a different reason. The gathering had spontaneously erupted into a, into a party. <laughs> there was noise now of jubilation, and it was, it was deafening, and the people were dancing, and they were slapping each other on the back. Christ has risen! <laughs> again, the missionary had to shut off the projector, but this time... He didn't tell them to calm down and wait for what was next. Because all that was supposed to happen in the story and in their lives was happening. Brothers and sisters, God seeks worshipers. But not worshipers who worship him from a window. <laughs> worship him from a distance. Worship him with no or very little passion. Now, God seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. And when the truth of the gospel is truly alive in our hearts, you will stay out of the window. <laughs> Believe me, you'll stay out of the window. And you'll celebrate before the Lord. One day, Jesus was asked, teacher, 
What's the most important commandment? And without hesitation, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6. Remember what that says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love him with everything you have, deeply, boldly, energetically, uh, reverently. See, God calls you and I, he calls us to a holy passion, a proper fervency. <laughs> he calls us to develop a passionate heart of worship. Let's pray. God, might we continue to grow in our understanding of what it means to worship you. God, might we worship you to seek your glory with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. God, might you be our focus. Might we want to give you the glory. And God, might we be passionate and exuberant in that in that worship. God, might you continue to change us and might our worship be pleasing to you. In your son's precious name, amen.